Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. It's Inc. Coda's Law is bullshit. Anyone that in 2023, almost 2024, is still going around either A, claiming it's not and it's legitimate, or B, claiming that the crypto 3D embraces Coda's Law. I think they're being disingenuous or just stupid. Adding Coda's Law, most reasonable people in the space have moved on from, you know, two, three years ago. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two quan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, I managed trading firms who were very involved. Um, I like that ETH is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Hello, everyone. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and czar of Superstate. GM, everybody. And today we've got a special guest, Samson, the white hat wizard at Paradigm. Hey. Is where you say something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Asib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. Uh, we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Okay, so um, Bitcoin just hit 44000 or just below $44,000 from being in the 30s last week. So a really crazy run-up in crypto markets. We were basically front-page news uh, once again. For, it's been a long time since crypto has been in the front-page news in positive light. But once again, it feels like we're in the early throes of a bull market. And uh, alongside that bull market, we now have ourselves in the curious position that it's hacking season again. And there's a lot more, I've been seeing a lot of stuff going around about people being targeted and hacks and scams and frauds and giveaways. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving away free ETH, uh, send me one ETH back after I send you this kind of stuff is going around again. And so I thought it'd be a great time to bring on Samsung. So for those of you who do not know, Samsung is probably the most famous white hat hacker in crypto. Tom, I remember you actually were at Zero X when Sam discovered, I think was probably one of the most legendary vulnerabilities in crypto history. Tom, do, do, yes. you, do you want to describe how that played out? Yeah, I think, I don't know if that, Sam, that was your debut, so to speak, but um, yeah, there was a pretty gnarly bug in Zero X V2 that Sam caught and it was a um, approvals related bug, um, which is one of the scariest. Basically the TLDR is it would have allowed anybody to create a fake zero X order on behalf of anybody who had used the protocol and basically drain any assets that you had allowed the protocol to trade, to tr trade on your behalf out of your wallet. And luckily Sam spotted this, got in touch with us. Um, I think we spent a whole overnight 24 hours thing um, trying to patch it, fix it, uh, put out the upgrade. But that was my first introduction to Sam, um, which we were incredibly lucky to uh, have had. And that was, that was one of the largest vulnerabilities ever discovered in DeFi at that time. So yes. it, was, it was a pretty crazy debut. And that's, that's how I remember first hearing about Sam. Um, Sam, I, I'd I know that you're a very secretive person. 
I imagine being a white hat and a cyber sleuth and having a lot of enemies from the sort of dark side of the internet requires you to have really good OPSEC. But it, whatever you're willing to share with us, and, and for those of you who are just listening to the podcast, Samson is appearing here in an anime avatar. He has a voice changer. So we do, there's a, he's, a, he's a very, very, he's the real deal. Sam, what, what can you share with us about who you are, where you came from, and how you got into the world of white hat hacking? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been doing security my entire life. And so you know, all of my IRO friends know this. And years ago, way before I started doing crypto, one of them reached out to me and he said, there's this thing happening on this Ethereum thing. It's really interesting. You're going to love it. It's like some multi-sig, whatever, something or other. But I was like, that's really awesome. I'm sure I will. And then I completely ignored it for like half a year because um, I was busy doing other stuff. And I continued ignoring it until one day I was just so absolutely bored out of my mind doing non-exciting, not crippled things. And I was sitting there going, what could I possibly be doing right now that would be more productive than, I don't know, like watching YouTube or whatever I was up to. Uh, and I remembered, you know, this Ethereum thing. And so that's, that's how I got started. And of course, back then, there weren't nearly as many resources to get started in crypto security as there are now, right? Today, we have so many, you know, there's blog posts, stuff, right? There's YouTube videos. There are even data pair auditing really easily um, through any of these training programs or just the contest or code arena. So it, today, it's really, really, really easy to get into security. Back then, you know, you had maybe one or two blog posts about here's the top in solidity vulnerabilities. But, um, you know, that's, that's sort of why I got started. And so I was looking to... You know, what exactly was this multi-sync bug? What exactly was reentency? What exactly was delegate call? And just slowly work my way up from there. Very cool. And so now you work with Paradigm. Um, you're a, I guess, white hat in chief or something. I don't know exactly what your role is. Security researcher, I guess, is probably what they call it. So what exactly do you do at Paradigm? Like, how do you fill your days? Yeah, so I think of my time at Paradigm, you know, mainly broken down into three parts. The first part, obviously, is dedicated to Paradigm itself. It would be quite embarrassing if Paradigm were to be hacked. I think I would actually just, well, fortunately I'm anonymous, so I can't just disappear, but I still don't really <laughs> want to do that. That's like the the last resort there. Um, so obviously a lot of time spent considering how to how to protect Paradigm, how to protect our assets. You know, obviously we're also in, uh, an investment firm. And so, you know, the second part, uh, chunk of my time is dedicated to figuring out how do we protect our portfolio companies? You know, if they have security asks, if they need an audit, if they need some code review, if they, if they need advice on non-crypto security, right? A few days ago, I tweeted out about um, these people going around threatening to, uh, claiming they found a bug in, you know, your wall site and they would take it offline, they would DDoS it. And then they would say, okay, before we tell you what this bug is, please pay us like five ETH. And so understandably, if you're a first time founder, you might be really stirred at that, right? You might be going, uh oh, no, what do I do? I, I got to pay up to figure out what's going on here. And so not necessarily crypto security, but I'm still there to help advise them on situations like that. You know, let them know that this is actually just extortion. They don't have anything of value. You know, you can, you can just like go on with your day. And then the third part of my time, is mainly focused towards the community itself. And so whether that's uh, finding bugs in other protocols or putting out these write-ups like I've been doing recently about uh, these sort of security self-audits, um, really just figuring out what I can do to help further the security of the space itself. So many people might not be as familiar with the crypto security world. And so in crypto security, there are two kinds of players generally. Well, there are many kinds, but the two main ones we'd like to talk about are what we call white hats and black hats. And a white hat 
is basically like a superhero. They are on the side of good. They're just out there to do the right thing, find bugs and protocols and be helpful to the people who are uh, trying to build useful things in the world. And then the other side is what's called the black hats. So the black hat hackers are people who are in it for their, themselves. They're trying to do harm. They're the supervillains in this whole story. And they're preying on civilians and trying to trick them into giving them money one way or another or outright breaking protocols. So a natural question many people have when they're thinking about somebody like yourself, who's a white hat, how does one decide to become a white hat hacker rather than a black hat hacker, given that many people realize that it's very lucrative to be a black hat hacker, especially when you have skills as good as yourself. Why do you end up becoming a white hat? The big reason for me is basically, I mean, I think I was raised in an environment where, you know, I was sort of taught that doing the right thing is more important than doing the thing that makes you more money. Um, so it was, I, I think I really took like the, the positive values to heart um, growing up. And so really the, the main satire I consider when I think about all of these biggest flights is not necessarily, oh, I would be so rich if I stole, you know, $500 million from this protocol. But I think more importantly, where did that $500,000 come from, right? And more often than not, it's going to be from these individual families, you know, parents, grandparents, like it, people who, for better or for worse, buy to foot their entire life savings in a DeFi protocol, not to excuse them and say that was like the right choice, right? Like a lot of these times people dabble in their entire life savings on a DeFi protocol, maybe not the most responsible choice, but the fact of the matter is that is their livelihood. And so, you know, just thinking about victimizing just like these large swaths of the population and really decimating their future like that. It's just something I can't live with. And so it really isn't about the dollar amount on the final payout, as it were, but just the fact that, you know, I was destroying so many lives. It's just something I can't, I can't live with. Yeah, Sam, you're really like an anime hero. <laughs> you're telling... <laughs> That's He's calling from though. his uh, secret underground bunker right now. It's the, the Fortress of Solitude we're seeing uh, in the background here. Yeah, the virtual reality laboratory. Um, mm -hmm. On that note, I mean, Sam, you know, total tangent, but what is your favorite anime? Well, you know, I think over the years as I've sort of matured, I, I've, my tastes have evolved. I think actually, funnily enough, most recently I've been watching Eminence and Shadow, which is just like this totally, uh, it like takes all the tropes um, in anime to the extreme. The plot is about this guy who just wants to be super fucking cool. And he has no idea what he's doing, but he's just like, you know, only around the the, the 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 plot and like everything just happens to work out. When actually, as it turns out, uh, I think apparently one one of the more popular crypto projects managed to do a collab with him, which is insane to me. I didn't realize that in a major anime studio would be open to that, but I think that just speaks to how awesome the the anime is. The launch I mean, it's a channel. Okay, it's a very thoughtful <laughs> answer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So speaking of white hats and black hats, um, I wanted to get into the meat of the story. So last week we had uh, Ogle on, Cryptogle, which I, I, Sam, I, I know you know well. And he was discussing with us the Kyber hack. So for those who are just tuning in, there was a massive hack uh, that took place um, over a week ago now uh, into a, a DeFi protocol called Kyber. Uh, and so Kyber, Kyber Swap, they're an on-chain DeFi DEX, basically, and DEX aggregator. So they were hacked on the order of something like 50 million plus that was stolen from the protocol. Um, so the hacker was kind of erratic. He was sort of, initially last week, he sent over a message saying, hey, you know, everybody chill out. Uh, I'm, I need to get some sleep before we start negotiating. And he was kind of telling everyone, hey, back off. You know, I better not have any trouble otherwise if you guys want to see this money. 
And so then on November 30th, which is about a week ago from today, um, he sent an even more unhinged message. Uh, this was like right around the time that our last episode got published. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the message that was sent by the hacker. Uh, and this is probably the strangest message I've ever seen a hacker send to a protocol. It is, it is the wildest. It is six out of six on the unhinged scale. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead. So now I'm, in the, I'm switching over to the hacker's voice. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to skip over some of the, the stuff. But basically he says, okay, here are my demands from the protocol. I offer a treaty. Uh, what, what I demand is complete executive control over Kyber, the company. I want temporary and full authority and ownership over the governance mechanism, KyberDAO, in order to enact legislative changes. I want all documents and all information related to the company and protocol formation, structure, operation, revenues, expenses, profits, assets, liabilities, investors, salaries, etc. And I demand that you surrender all of Kyber, the company's assets on-chain and off-chain, including shares, equity, tokens, partnerships, blogs, websites, servers, passwords, code, social channels, and any and all creative intellectual property. Once my demands have been met, I will provide the following. Executives, you will be bought out of the company at a fair valuation. You'll be wished well in your future endeavors. You haven't done anything wrong. A small error was made, rounding in the wrong direction. It could have been made by anyone. Simply bad luck. Employees, under a new regime, your salary will be doubled. It is understandable that many current employees will want to leave regardless. The employees who don't want to stay will be given a 12-month severance with full benefits and assistance in finding a new career, no questions asked. Token holders and investors, under this treaty, your tokens will no longer be worthless. Is this not sweet enough? I'll go further still. Under my management, Kyber will undergo a complete makeover. It will no longer be the seventh most popular DEX, but rather an entirely new cryptographic project. LPs, these are the people who had their money stolen. Uh, LPs, you will be gifted a rebate on your recent market-making activity. The rebate will be for 50% of the losses you incurred. I know this is probably less than what you wanted. However, it is also more than you deserve. This is my best offer. This is my only offer. I require my demands be met by December 10th, otherwise the treaty falls through. Additionally, should I be contacted by agents from any of the 206 sovereignties, which means countries, uh, concerning the trades I place on Kyber, the treaty falls through. In this case, the rebates will total to exactly zero. Kyber is one of the original and longest running DeFi protocols. No one wants to see it go under. To assist with this transition of leadership, I may be contacted on Telegram, and he drops his Telegram handle, which is Kyber Director. Thank you. Signed, Kyber Director. <laughs> so this, I, I have, in, in all my years, to be clear, we still don't know who this hacker is. We have no idea who this attacker is. Maybe, you know, maybe people in the war room might know, but this is the fucking craziest message I have ever seen from a hacker. Um, re reactions. Well, I mean, I will just say that the hacker voice sounds a lot like a great investor I know called Hasib, and I've never seen Kyber <laughs> Director and Hasib in the same room. So I'm not quite sure to make of this, but maybe we should get some of, some of the FDI on it or something. You know, I, this does actually sound like the kind of language I'd use in an ultimatum, so I, I, I can see the connection. Yeah, this is like a very uh, sadistic form of like a, a bear hug. You know, they're trying to uh, do a, do a, an LPO of Kyber by acquiring the assets first and then taking over. I mean, I don't know how they also expect this to work. They want to run the company while also being anonymous criminal. And uh, I, don't, I mean, how are they going to take over the off-chain assets? Like, the whole thing doesn't actually even make any sense. Like, the demand is, is kind of nonsensical on top of just being uh, uh, totally insane. Well, it has a lot of parallels back to Avi Eisenberg and Mango Markets, where, you know, the hacker or market manipulator or whatever, so to speak, was of the opinion that it was legitimate market activity, that there was nothing illegal about it, and that it was all fair game to take all of the assets from the protocol. 
and try to negotiate from a position of strength or at least self-perceived strength. And obviously, you know, this hack was not perpetrated by Avi, um, but it sounds very similar in the response where it says, you know, it takes the opinion, oh, this was, you know, fair game. This was the LPs, you know, were market makers and I, you know, simply traded profitably against them. And coming from this, you know, position of wisdom and, you know, success, I would take that even further and say, I want to take over all of Kyber in a legal fashion. It's just, it's so perplexing to me that like somebody has this level of both delusion and self-aggrandization. I mean, this hacker is nuts. And I think in their head, they might think that there's a shot that Kyber, you know, takes them seriously. Whereas anyone, you know, in the outside world, you know, immediately, you know, sees the, you know, preposterous nature of what they're asking. I was going to say, it's a, it's a good deal for the employees, <laughs> like 12 months severance and doubling their pay. I'm like the employees at Kyber might be like, Hey guys, I think we should, we should maybe work for this hacker. It, it, yeah. Clearly there's some weird grandiosity, like kind of personality uh, disorder going on with this guy. Like some people were saying like, okay, well, I think he's trolling. I think this is a joke. This didn't read to me like a joke. It was so specific. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, so Sam, I know that you're in the war room and I, you know, we got a sense from, from Ogle last week that um, maybe you're constrained in what you can say, given that you might be in the room where this stuff is happening. Anything you can share with us about how this is being perceived by the first responders? I mean, yeah, well, you know, you've absolutely nailed on the heads that I, I am definitely a bit limited um, out of just out of respect to the process. You know, I, I don't want to be disclosing information that isn't public, but I think, you know, like most people on Twitter and just in the general, you know, media sphere, yeah, like the, the demands don't seem particularly reasonable. And if I were the hacker, I, I would assume I know that like, you know, he went quiet for a handful of days, no response, and suddenly comes out with, you know, these demands. I mean, even if Kaber were to, you know, start making progress towards those, like how do you how is that you hand control over those off-chain components to someone who they absolutely doesn't want to be doxxed? It just doesn't quite make sense to me. If the hacker is being genuine, and I'm, I'm sure he's probably listening to this podcast the moment it comes out, but if, you, if he is being genuine, you know, he should, he's more than welcome to reach out and clarify how he wants to do that. But I'm assuming he's not. And so we just have to kind of proceed like, you know, he isn't. And I, I think another big part of the problem here is basically setting the understanding that this actually isn't what we want to allow in crypto in the future. And so, you know, what Tyver does here actually has, you know, it, it's actually very meaningful down the line, right? And so we want to make sure we're treading very carefully to make sure we're not setting any bad precedents for um, future projects and future hackers. Right. I think Kyber, it's, I mean, it seems like an obvious non-starter to have this hacker take over Kyber. I mean, that's, I, again, don't have no idea how that would possibly work. It, we'd also have to dox the hacker, right? Like in order to take over a company, people have to know who is who they're transferring the shares to. The, the thing is like, this person is clearly quite sophisticated in the sense that the things they're asking for are the kinds of things you would actually ask for if you were taking over a company. So this is not like some child or just some, you know, somebody who has no idea how companies work, uh, which is what makes it so interesting is that clearly this person is a black hat. Clearly they're also a business person and they have some understanding of how a deal like this might be manufactured and executed, but they don't have sufficient understanding 
to realize what a crazy thing this is to to propose. Or maybe they do, and maybe they, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe they say, okay, well, great. If you're willing to go through with this, please transfer over the ownership into this shell company in the Seychelles that nobody has ever heard of. And that is, you know, seven layers nested deep into some the structure of other shell companies that you're never going to get to the bottom of. And, and this thing is going to make all the decisions. Maybe that's how this thing turns out. I would be so fascinated just to know if you say yes, what happens, right? What's the, what's the next thing? I don't think there's any chance in hell that anybody would say yes to this, but it's, it's such a fascinating alternate timeline. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, given all this, it's, it sounds like from the, the voices I think we're hearing from Kyber is that probably this is going to be a no. Uh, Victor Tran from Kyber Network uh, tweeted out, no one fucking cares about Kyber users like we do. You deserve the best message tomorrow. And then they kind of wrote some general stuff about how Kyber is trying to help uh, uh, alleviate some of the pain for the folks who had their money lost in the hack uh, as they're continuing to work through things with uh, the recovery. And apparently there was also some funds that were moved into Tornado Cash uh, from the Kyber Swap exploiter. So it does seem like the Kyber Swap exploiters more or less moving money around and it doesn't seem like this money's coming back home anytime soon. It's an unfortunate situation, but it is very crazy. Sam, I don't know. I know this is not your domain. You're more on the kind of smart contract vulnerability side. Just give me, give us an understanding though. When something like this happens, how does a war room come together, right? What's the mechanism by which, okay, some, some shit went down. How are you and Ogle and all these people kind of summoned to the right place and how how does the thing come together uh, that the response gets organized? Yeah, so I think the moment anything happens on chain, there's always a handful of people that, you know, find out immediately. Um, they have bots running, they have alerts running, they have monitoring. Sometimes they have more monitoring than the projects themselves, which is probably not where you want to be in the future, but it is where we're at right now. Then these people will reach out to people they know that are typically, you know, that, that People you might consider the first responders, um, such as myself or Ogle or um, any of the other white hats. And then from there, we sort of, I, I think everyone in the white hat community sort of understands what the correct proposition of a worm is. That is to say, you know, it should be, you know, orchestrated by the project. They should have final saying what happens. Should have dairy. It should be very exclusive, so you shouldn't be inviting just everyone, you know, and everyone they know, and suddenly it's like a 100% room, and you're not really sure where all this information is going. And so it does happen, you know, sort of organically, in the sense that the moment the project finds out, I think everyone basically advises them, you should make your war room if you don't have one. You know, you should invite people that you think are trustworthy. Obviously, everyone thinks they're they're trustworthy, um, and so the project has to make some choices. Uh, and then from there, once you're all gathered in the same place, it tends to follow pretty... Um, Pretty steady rhythm. Uh, I, I mean, at this point, I think everyone basically knows the, the, the you know, go out there, make sure you, any ads possible is paused, make sure that you've identified the vulnerability, make sure you've, you know, you've done what you can to alert the users. Uh, on the tracing side, you know, that's not my ears, every special fees at all, but people like Pay the Money Ahead and Zach XCT, um, you know, they'll go out there, they'll piece together all the little clues. Um, so it really does work like a well oiled machine once everyone is there. And then it just, uh, you just, def you just have to get the money back. <sighs> I think most people in crypto, especially who are building smart contract based applications or DeFi protocols, you know, they all wake up in a cold sweat having nightmares that Sam DM'd them about something happening in their protocol. Like that is the the touch of death is Sam sends you a DM about, hey, I saw, I saw this thing <laughs> happening on chain. I mean, you yeah, watched exactly. this, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. W just from your perspective, Sam, what is that like? 
because I imagine this is kind of uh, a very common occurrence for you, but for many people, this is when you DM them is the worst day of their lives. Yeah, I mean, there's really two forms that DM can take. I think the the one that everyone prefers is, you know, I'm trying to message them about something that no one else knows yet, right? Or hasn't been exploited. And in that case, it, it is still pretty heart-wrenching, but at least you know that your money is safe if you sort of follow best practices. That The one that's not as good, and unfortunately the one that's happening more often now, is I or someone else message them because something has happened on chain. And so now it's not a question of, yeah, what can you do to not sure you don't lose anything, but you know, how much have you lost and what what do you do next? And that is that, I mean, you know, I, I always acknowledge in every war room that I'm here to provide advice. I'm here to provide an objective. So from an objective viewpoint, what I think might be the right thing to do, but I'm not the one in the hot seat, right? I'm not the one who's staring down the barrel of, you know, a nine figure loss and I will never know what that feels like. And so I can only imagine it, it must be it must be hell. Like, I wouldn't want to subject my worst enemy to that. That's, that must be terrible. When you're on sort of the prevention side of things, when you're, when you're looking for vulnerabilities, how do you decide where to focus your time? Do you just go on DeFi Llama and sort of by TVL? Are there sort of signs that sort of, you know, activate your spidey sense that like, oh, there might be an issue with this protocol? How do you sort of uh, prioritize things? There's like a lot of different places I get sort of new coverage from. DeFi Llama was one of them. Uh, Go ether scan used to be one of them, but now the the sort of verified contracts page is not, it's just not a great view. It's like what's happening on chain anymore. It's just way too noisy. People messaging me about phase of the Orkion is also um, another great source. And so really just gathering, you know, signals from all these different places and then sort of, yeah, it's hard to say what I prioritize by. I think it's a combination of does it feel like it's a very complex thing to try to do? Um, does it feel like it's going to have a lot of money in it? Um, what are they nice about it? Like sometimes, you know, people are not not the nicest and then I'm less inclined to, to put in time to it, but generally people are. And so it's really a you know, multitude of factors. I mean, I think that's, that's pretty much it. So you've seen almost everything possible go wrong on chain at some point in your career. What do you do on chain? What does Samsung actually do on chain? Do you like trade NFTs? Do you sit around in LP and protocols? Or do you just like, look, I'm, I'm going to never touch any of this stuff with my own money? Oh my God. Well, so before I joined Paradigm, I also didn't do much. Um, I, I really, having found so many bugs in protocols at the time, I, I think, you know, security has gotten a lot better since, when was that, like 2020? Was when I joined Paradigm, um, security's gotten a lot better. But at the time, having been the one to find all these issues and all these protocols, I was like, there, yeah, there's no way in hell I'm using any of these things. I'm going to keep my money in these and I'm going to keep my money in diet. Uh, <laughs> Paradigm is a pretty strict compliance policy. So nowadays, even if I wanted to do stuff on chain, it's pretty tricky to do it in any meaningful capacity, which is fine. I still am pretty conservative about how much risk I want to take, which is what makes it all the more ironic that Having been very inactive on change, I'd like, speaking of which, actually, side tangent, there's these addresses that people keep linking to me because someone bought an ENS that looks like my handle. And all these supposed like chain analytics companies will like tag me on Twitter and they'll be like, this multi-million dollar address linked to Sam has been doing these trades. Follow us for more intel. And I'm just like, 
if you're gonna get me wrenched for you know owning like a like a multi-million dollar address like at least let me own a multi-million dollar address first i don't want to get wrenched <laughs> for having you know like <laughs> this like 100x less than what what you're claiming anyways um it's just really ironic because having made an effort to like not really participate too heavily on chain there's only like maybe five or six protocols i'm actually involved in purely just by like holding a stable coin or whatever and one of them happened to be like the urine usd like yoda bearing uh token which you know as of a few months ago maybe like half a year ago uh no longer bears any yield because it got hacked so yeah i guess it, you know even when i try to avoid it i can't avoid it it just it happens to everyone well let that be a lesson to you never touch any of this stuff it's all it's all just poison <laughs> for your bank account. Yeah. Um, okay. So speaking, speaking of all this, actually, there's another interesting story in the news that kind of relates to black hatting and white hatting, which was there was a French court uh, that was uh, trying somebody. There, was, there were a couple of exploiters who had hacked a protocol called Platypus, which is an AMM on uh, Avalanche. And the attackers claimed that they had ethical intentions, uh, that they were white hatting, even though they were taking some of the money for themselves, but they were giving back most of the money or something along these lines. And a French court acquitted them. And the judge basically described the, uh, or sort of analogized what these people had done in hacking the smart contract as uh, taking something from a machine that gives more than it should give. So it's kind of like, okay, well, this vending machine kind of had a bug in the vending machine, but like that's not the same thing as, you know, breaking the thing open. Or that that, that was sort of the analogy that the judge gave. So there, there's been a bunch of arguments about this and that basically is this French court upholding the code is law meme that is often thrown around in crypto, which is that because this thing is code, that should supersede what any other legal analysis might uh, otherwise define as being the contract between two people. Curious for you, Sam, having looked at the situation, given that you are a white hat, wh what did you think about this, um, this, th this French judge acquitting these uh, two folks who exploited platypus? Yeah, well, so first of all, I think Codas Law is bullshit. Anyone that in 2023, almost 2024, is still going around either A, claiming it's not and it's legitimate, or B, claiming that the crypto 3ND embraces Codas Law. I think they're being disingenuous or just stupid. I think Codas Law, most reasonable people in the space have moved on from, you know, two, three years ago. And so just want to get that you know, out there right off the top. I think as for the actual yeah, case itself, not a lawyer, don't want to pretend like I am. I think there was some, there was a huge discussion about this in the eight security telegram, which uh, I, 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 you know, participated in. And it was a nice three plus hour, I feel like flame war, where we just kept going in circles. Um, I probably didn't help in that. So, you know, not, not to, not to pretend like I'm innocent here, but I think what someone did point out to me was that this happened in a criminal court and the judge, I believe, said something like, you know, you can try pursuing this in a civil court and you probably will be successful. And, you know, people pointed out the nuance here that, you know, it might not actually be desirable for any crypto is it to be tried, prosecuted, whatever the time is, in criminal court, and that is to be uh, set on civil courts. But again, not a lawyer, so I don't quite understand the nuance here. I think... You know, generally speaking, though, I would like to see some, you know, some justice carried out here. I'm like the which court aside, like it seems a little ridiculous just 
from pure intuition that you know exactly who did it. You know for sure they didn't have good intentions, despite what they might claim to the contrary. Um, and you just have to walk free like that. Seem, you know, you, you've had a, the the justice system, the perpetrator on the silver platter, and if they walk away from it, I think that very very clearly sends a message that at least in France this is fine, and I don't think that's a message we should be sending at all. And was that the prevailing view of security folks in the Ethereum world? I do think there, there's two major camps here. One of them is this view. And the other camp is that actually there shouldn't be, like we, we shouldn't necessarily embrace code as law, but we also shouldn't, um, yeah, basically run to daddy whenever something goes wrong. Um, and that we should try to settle it, you know, the, like a more crypto native way. Do you mean the, what is it? Is it Claro's courts? Is that the crypto native way? <laughs> Wait, maybe finally a use case. Well, someone filed a, a Claro's court case against the Kyver hacker. And they were like, we should, <laughs> what, what was the phrasing of it again? They were like, we, we need to stop them from using all the chains or something. So, I don't know. Maybe finally a use case. All right. So yeah, we got to stop running to our French daddies when things go wrong. Okay. Got it. Yeah. But I mean... To be clear, like I'm not discounting that other camp, um, other opinions here. Um, I think they're like, you know, looking back to what crypto was originally meant for, which is like this idea of being like a truly neutral, you know, like un, you know, basically like independent, you know, financial system. Um, I, I I can see where they're coming from in the sense that like, while you know, if you welcome like third party intervention into your system, sometimes then you're going to have to welcome their card intervention at other times when it doesn't sue you. And so actually we just shouldn't welcome it at all. I don't necessarily agree with this, but I can answer where they're coming from. And so, yeah, but yeah, just to like put a bow on that answer. I think that's sort of where the two, two major camps lie. Robert, what's your take on all this? My take on all of this is that I still think of the entire ecosystem as being in the first inning. Um, so maybe, maybe the second inning, um, so to speak of figuring out the social, legal, contractual, moral, and economic conditions of how on-chain systems should operate. I mean, this debate is only going back to really beginning at the Dow hack. Um, so eight years ago is like the real first origin of this. And I feel like we are going to be debating these things for another 80 years. Um, and I think like there's going to start to be consensus, you know, emerging over time, but it's still incredibly early. Like just the knowledge about how security even works on chain is a relatively new field. And so, you know, I think the standards that exist now are still evolving quickly. You know, these are not ossified <laughs> expectations. You know, on the last episode, we were talking about the expectations around hack voluntary recoveries and returns of funds. And these are like new, <laughs> new being like less than a year old standards. You know, the standards have not ossified. Um, and, you know, my, my personal take is that, you know, I don't think the current operating conditions for on-chain systems are good enough. I don't think they're safe enough. I think that as a user, this is still a minefield for the most part. You know, you're still taking risks that are extremely hard to calculate. 
when you use any smart contract created application. And, you know, I don't think where we're at today even is just, it's good enough. I just don't think so. And I think there's a lot of improvement left to go before systems are good enough for end users from a safety and security perspective. Sam, you've been around the space for a while. And I mean, earlier you said, hey, security has improved a lot since 2020. What do you see as those main areas of improvement where standards in the industry are just so much higher than three years ago? And, and what do you see as sort of the frontiers of uh, new attack surfaces, you know, new types of vulnerabilities? Um, what is sort of that, that vanguard? I think it's important to disambiguate between security in what I would consider, you know, sort of like the leading projects in um, sort of Ethereum, Polygon, Avalanche, all, all the more, I would consider reputable chains and then like everything on BSC. I think there, there definitely feels like there's this completely separate universe of projects that keep getting hacked by these various mistakes, um, like not having a function be private or not changing costs in everywhere in the code or just like things that I don't, I just want to exclude from the conversation because I don't think they actually represent what well-intentioned actors are doing as far as securing their projects. As far as like, you know, these good actors go, we don't see many civil interests anymore. We don't see, I mean, in fact, a lot of in, a lot of the bikes that I would have read when I first got started in crypto security in that blog post for like top 10 solidity vulnerabilities would not be applied at all today. And I think that's partly due to just better educational resources. I think that's due to more accessible security resources. I think it's just the prevalence of security contests themselves, right? Where you benefit from the sheer numbers of people looking at your code um, compared to a, a not a firm which would assign you know, maybe like two, three, four people max. I think all of these things have done wonders for security. Obviously, it hasn't been enough because even though we've raised the bar to finding a bug, these bugs still exist, case in point, Kyber. And so I'm actually not really sure what specifically the next step is. One thought I had was basically with all of these hacks that we're seeing, it's not as if these hacks are, you know, being executed using inside of Nolan Detroit. It's not like you had to have the admin key or you had to have push access from the code to like instant backdoor. These were setting in plain sight for some definition of plain sight. And so a part of you wonders if there's any way we can, again, use the power of numbers to our advantage, where even though there might be five white hats looking for a bug in the next fiber, there's actually 500 white hats looking for that same bug. So the question I'm wondering is how do we incentivize that behavior beyond what we already have with bug bounties and audits and contests and all these other things that we dropped over the years? So I know that one of the initiatives that you've been very involved in, Samsung, is this thing that you call the Security Alliance. And we've seen a bunch of initiatives that you've instigated from your position into trying to improve the overall security environment for Ethereum as well as uh, just you know smart contract-based projects across many different chains. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that you guys have come out with recently, such as CL911 and um, this uh, crisis handbook. Can you kind of talk us through what's the security alliance? Where did this come from? Why does it sound like, you know, the, a, a league of superheroes? And what, what exactly are you guys doing that you feel like is moving the needle on Ethereum security or just smart contract security generally? 
Yeah, I mean, the idea actually is to give it sort of the vibe of, you know, like a League of Superheroes, like a group of just like people who are not self-interested. They're worthy for the, they're worthy for the benefit of the public, for the greater good. Um, and that is really the focus of what the Security Alliance is trying to do. And so, as you said, we launched Seal Number One. We've launched Seal Drills. Uh, we launched the Seal Handbooks. Um, and the goal of all these projects and, you know, future ones that we're working on is to be able to put aside, you know, individual interests and personal motivations and actually do the things that matter, actually do the things that will move the needle in the space. You know, if you try to convince some audit job or a handful of white hats or, you know, whoever else, like you should set aside, you know, minutes, hours, days of your time every week to, on a purely volunteer basis, do this like, you know, frontline help desk service, right? Uh, and by the way, it's going to be branded under my company. Um, I think that's like a pretty hard sell to anyone who doesn't work for your company. Because it's like, why, why are we doing this for you, right? There's always questions of what the motivations are, who's benefiting, you know, all that fun stuff. And so, you know, let's just set aside the question of who is benefiting. It's going towards this neutral organization. It's going towards, you know, the crypto ecosystem, as it were. And let's just focus on the fact that what we need right now is this service where people, if they need help, if they have some bug that they can't get to the right person um, at a protocol, which, you know, we've had quite a few of these reports where people can't get to the protocol and they need to, they need to report a bug. Um, now let's make the service available for them, right? Let's not make them pay for it. Let's make it so that if they need to contact a white hat, they can do it really easily. You know, same thing with seal drills, right? In one, two, we have solved the problem of how do you train people on security? We just give them the training, right? But in Y3, if you were to say, hey, you know, please pay us $20,000 and we'll run the training exercise for you. Well, now you have all these like DAO governance debates about what are like, you know, why, why should we fund your grant or like what, what are the, what is the, like the proposal, you know, what are the deliverables, et cetera. Um, you, you have to do all these like DAO politics. If some, you know, for-profit company was trying to do this, people might be like, oh, like, are you trying to sell me a service? Is this going to be like, what, what's the catch here? And actually there's no catch, right? Like the, the whole point is there's no catch. What we're trying to do is it to profit off this. It's not to sell your service. It's not to, you know, like, it's not to attach hidden strings to it. We just want to make security space better, right? And that's something I think everyone in security and everyone in crypto in general can stand behind. They just needed something to stand behind that wasn't allied with any particular company they might dislike or any particular you know, group or person, whatever they might dislike. It's left, that's the purpose of the security alliance. That's awesome. And tell us a little bit for projects, you know, let's say I'm a founder, I'm at the very beginning of building up my protocol and I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on cybersecurity. What should I be looking for? Like, what should I be doing? What should I keep in mind as my project scales? Tell me about how I should think about SEAL drills or the handbook or uh, SEAL 911. Yeah. So I think there's this vision that over time, what we'll be able to fly is, you know, from the very moment that you get started to when your protocol is live on mainnet, resources that will help you as a founder or developer uh, make the best choices for your protocol from a security perspective. But until we get there, I think the same things apply as they always have, which is to say, 
I think the crypto has always had this spirit of like being open to all. And so maybe not necessarily gatekeeping on you have to be like a senior developer to start writing Solidity. But whether before or during your development process, like uh, learning about, you know, best practices of development, right? Like learn about all the different ways that Solidity might have foot guns. Make sure you're writing tests as you go. Make sure you're, you're no. I, like unit tests or fuzz tests or property tests, make sure you're doing the things you're supposed to be doing. Once you're done with development or even during development, make sure you're engaging the security community, right? Whether it's through an audit, through a contest, through just set, like reach out to a few people, see if they're open to a peer review. And then once you do deploy, you know, we have systems in place like bug bounties, right? And so I think that the advice there hasn't necessarily changed that much from what it used to be. Um, really just continue following those best practices. But my hope is that over time, as we continue to mature, you know, into 24 and 25, and as the security alliance continues to develop these public goods that, you know, do significantly move the needle in a way that, you know, for an individual researcher or individual auditor, it's just hard for them to gather the resources or the, the mindset to do that. I'm hopeful that for a future de developer, much like when I first got started in security, there weren't any resources for me. I'm hoping that in 24, 25, there will be resources that will just be, you know, 10x, 100x better than what they are right now. Uh, and that's something that we can work on building. That's a really awesome vision. And, um, you know, I've heard some of the stuff behind the scenes about how the security alliance has come together and it's inspiring. Uh, in, in crypto, people often have this view that you know, look, it's, we're kind of out in the state of nature and, you know, we don't believe in, um, you know, the state or the government. And as a result, a lot of times public goods aren't really provisioned sufficiently. And it, it's, it very much reminds me of almost like police in that, you know, one can imagine like, well, you know, if you're, if you're a, a pure, if you're a pure anarcho-capitalist, you might say like, well, you know, can't people hire their own private security? Why do we need government-backed police? Uh, this seems like a private good that can be provisioned totally fine by private markets. But smart contract security shows you that, look, when you have enough things that are vulnerable, then that it, it's kind of like just having, um, it's like having rats or like having ants that just create an infestation. And when you know, when they know they can survive, then people just, it, an ecosystem gets created of black hats and people who are going around, you know, rampaging and, um, you know, holding things for ransom and, you know, DDoSing websites to convince you to pay them or something. And the more that there is a unified front from the entire industry, from all protocols, that one shows people that, hey, using stuff on chain can be safe, not always safe, but if you use the right kinds of protocols with the right kinds of teams that are reputable and, and using best practices, they can be safe to interact with. And if you're a black hat, you're not going to have a good time. You know, you're not going to get your money out. You're not going to be able to make away with these goods. And most things that you find are, are going to be secure. It's a great way, I think, to strengthen the proposition of moving more and more stuff on chain and making it more trustworthy for users. So I, huge hats off. And especially after having Ogle on last week, I kind of feel like, hey, you know, in holiday season, it'd be nice to, to sort of um, give a salute to everybody who's working on security on the white hat side, uh, because what you guys do is so, so important, so valuable, and so often is underappreciated. I just want to jump in and just comment that like, I think it really is about the community and the ecosystem and the way that the alliance structured, like, this, I couldn't have done this by myself, right? And I can't do this by myself. It really is a community effort. And so I'm most really thankful to everyone else involved from, you know, all these different auditors putting their, putting in their time to help triage these issues. Um, you know, Nason themselves directly worked on the first 
a copy of the handbook. Um, that was a lot of time that they put in, you know, without traditionally compensated any, in any way. Uh, it really was for the greater good. Paradigm letting me do this itself, it, this has been a huge time sink for the entire year. Um, and, you know, letting me sort of, I, I don't want to say neglect by other duties, but maybe letting that third pillar that I talked about eat up a little into the first and second pillars. So I, it, it really is, I think, a huge team effort. And I'm really grateful that people in crypto are open to that and not just sort of, you know, closed off in their own silos, trying to figure out how to maximize for themselves. Speaking as somebody that, you know, created a protocol many years ago, I oftentimes have this experience where, you know, people tell me, oh, you know, you've contributed so much to space, it couldn't exist without you. And I don't necessarily like feel like I'm a hero. But when I look at Sam's son and I look at the people that are the white hats in this industry, you know, you're the people that I idolize that, you know, I think are heroes that, you know, make this possible for everybody else. And so I, I think it's hard to overstate, you know, how much good you've done. I think there's a lot that people don't know about how much good you've done for, you know, protocols and for the industry. A lot of this stuff doesn't always, you know, reach Coindesk. It doesn't always reach crypto Twitter. And, you know, I can state, you know, very clearly that you've done an astronomical amount of good for the industry. Wow. If this happened, I could blush. I would be butting right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll add some blush and posts to your, uh, to your anime avatar. So I, I talked earlier about how we're entering into a bear market. And I think that likely means we've already started to see uh, an escalation in bull phishing, market. scamming. Sorry, did I say bear market? Bull market. Bull yeah, market. it's a bull uh, market. We're entering in, yeah, sorry. We're entering into a bull market and we've already seen an escalation in cybersecurity incidents. So I think this is also a good time going into the holiday season for, for getting people to start thinking about their own personal security. Um, and Sam, I think you'd be the, kind of the perfect person to ask. Uh, you released some stuff earlier that I saw through the Security Alliance about best practices around Twitter security, email security, Telegram security. Um, can you just, I mean, obviously there's a podcast, so and there's people with a variety of different technical backgrounds and probably many people here don't even use Telegram. Uh, but can you just give like a general overview, you know, random person in the street who's part of the crypto world or interested in the crypto world, how should they be thinking about what are the easiest things you can do to up-level your own personal security to make sure that nothing bad happens to you this holiday season? Yeah. Well, look, I think there's some really easy table stakes things that everyone should be doing. I think if you're not already using password manager, you should be using password manager. If you are currently using password manager and it's called last test, you should be using a different password manager. Um, I would recommend something like one password, for example. Right. You know, don't feel bad. Even if you use the last pass, it's so good that you are using password manager. It's just they don't have a great reputation or track record. Um, so you should help me try and find a different one. I think if you're currently using uh, SMS 2FA on anything, that is maybe by far the most common way people would, people in crypto for high value targets, you know, by far the most common way they get hacked is they get SIM swap and all of a sudden everything they have is hacked because everything they have is checked at the phone number. And it's so easy to just do a password reset. So go through, and I'm, I'm gonna be putting out uh, a guide on this in a few days, but you know, go through your email, your bank accounts, your exchanges, your social media, any of these accounts where if you just sit down for one and go, it would be really bad if someone could impersonate me there or see all the stuff I had, I've, I've stored there since, you know, when I first made the account, like all of your past emails, all of your stored pictures, all the messages you sent five years ago, 
Like if that would be bad for an attacker to have, get rid of SMS 2FA because if you if you're in crypto, that is not safe for you. Let me let me pause you there because I think you're you're using a lot of acronyms that people might not be familiar with. So just for everybody, because I think this is probably the most useful public service announcement we can give. So 2FA stands for two-factor authentication. It's when you have a second way to log in. You, know, like you get a password and then it's like, okay, we're going to text you. Using text or SMS is not a secure way for most people to use second-factor authentication. Many, many, many people in crypto get their phone numbers taken over through what's called SIM swapping. So SIM swapping is when somebody calls your um, uh, your, your network provider. So if you use Verizon, use T-Mobile, whatever, they'll call Verizon, they'll call T-Mobile, they'll say, hey, I am Tom Schmidt. Uh, I lost my phone or whatever, blah, 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 but this is really me. They find some information on you online that can corroborate, oh, here's my name, here's my address. Maybe they have your social security number from one of these old data hacks. There's a billion of them now, so everybody's social security number is no longer really that secret. And they impersonate you and they take over your uh, your number. And by taking over your number, now they can log in as you because they say, oh, I forgot my password. Uh, it says, oh, really, is this you? Answer this text, they answer your text. They get into your email, blah, blah, blah. This is SIM swapping. It happens to many, 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 many people in crypto. Happened um, to me twice. Tw tw twice? Wait, hold on. <laughs> Happening once is understandable. How did it happen twice? You know, I, after it happened once, you know, I went, I kept my number at T-Mobile and I went, I said, put on port protection, you know, put on, you know, a full lock on transfers, like don't allow this to transfer again. I think someone was bribed you know, as an internal employee and whatever protections I had were removed and I was SIM swapped twice. That's insane. Well, I okay, so agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So one, one thing that I would recommend is if you're, if use Google Fi as your phone provider, because Google Fi cannot be SIM swapped because it's tied to your, uh, your Google account, but in general, never use SMS. If you can ever use anything besides SMS as your second factor, always, always, always do it because SMS is just riddled with problems. Anyway, sorry, Sam, I wanted to stop you there just because uh, I know that this is probably the most important piece of advice that most people have never even heard of. All good. And actually, I'm really glad he did because I, I want to actually follow up on Robert's point a bit. And just, if you, if you don't mind, dive a little into the nuance, not too deeply um, into what actually happens in a SEM swap. And it's actually really, I'm really happy that you, you mentioned your experiences because it actually is a perfect example for how there's two layers to SEM swapping. Right. The first part is your sort of run of the mill. As an attacker, I know I have no sexual access. I know, you know, no yeah, yeah, extra special information. I just know that my target is Palm Schmidt, I guess. We're all going to be on Palm today. And, you know, I'm going to call into a T-Mobile store or a Verizon store. And I'm going to say, hey, like, I'm running super behind. I'm like in the middle of nowhere. I really need my phone back. I lost my SIM card. I lost my phone. I need to get back the SAP. And that poor, you know, store rep has no idea what's going on. He doesn't work in crypto. He's just like, there's this poor guy in, in Christmas, no less, right? It's the season of giving. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, he has no idea what's happening. You might have a no owner account, but that's totally up to whichever support representative that is handling the case, whether or not they want to look at it. Right. There's no formal process in the system that says click this button only after you like uploaded the password and our systems have verified it. Right. Like doesn't, that doesn't exist. And so the first half is basically, can you, without any prior context, social engineer, uh, squirt agent into handing the account over? Right. And this applies, you know, if you've bought 
uh, you know, a plan directed from AT&T, from Verizon, from, you know, Mint Mobile, whatever, right? Uh, Fi almost certainly protects against this. There's just no support agent you could talk to if you're dealing with Google. And so there's no one to fish or no one to social engineer. Uh, but to Albert's point, Google Fi actually doesn't protect against the second type of attack, which is someone actually bribes an insider or compromises an insider at the company itself, right? At AT&T or Verizon or T-Mobile. Uh, and because every, at least in the United States, uh, every cell carrier goes through one of these major, you know, uh, infrastructure providers, uh, your account is in their systems. And if you bribe a T-Mobile employee as you know, Robert Simpson did. Uh, no amount of notes, no amount of lops, none of that will matter. It doesn't matter if you're with T-Mobile directly or you're with Google Fi or any of the other, uh, what we call MDNOs, which is mobile virtual network operators, I believe, or number operator. Um, it doesn't matter because you're in their backend and that employee has full access to that system, right? And so that's why one just like recognize that you Google Fi and other, you know, cell providers that are sort of designed to be more secure than the average self-provider for consumers will protect you against social engineering, but it won't protect you against an insider. And if you're also high value target like Robert is, it might be worse bribing an employee with say $5,000 to get access to your phone, which potentially will last your Coinbase account worth millions of dollars. And so actually no, the most important thing me. you can do is, <laughs> yeah, the most important thing you can do is actually Completely, if you have an option to remove your phone number from the account, remove it. If you have it set as the two-factor authentication method, remove it. Because just assume that if you're above a certain net worth, and that that could be you know as high as like six figures, right? Or even like mid five figures, because it doesn't actually cost a lot to bribe these employees. Um, so if you're above some certain net worth, like just get rid of, stop relying on your phone number, because a motivated attacker will get access to that insider if they want to. And then there's no level of pressure you can do to solve that. Got it. Anything else that you think is kind of low-hanging fruit for people to improve on their security? Yeah, I think the last one is just get a hardware wallet. Again, same same concept. If you're bothered with a certain net worth and you don't have a hardware wallet and you have all your funds in a MetaMask or uh, Rainbow, whatever, or a Uniswap, whatever wallet you're using these days, like that is just such a big risk. Um, there's a reason that everyone recommends hardware wallets, and that's because it guarantees that no, even if your computer is fully compromised, the computer has to send a request to the hardware wallet to perform an action, and the hardware wallet will not lie to you about what you're doing. So as long as you're reading the string or whatever display on your wallet is telling you, and you see that action looks suspicious, you will protect yourself. God forbid. I mean, there's always that point, there's a 1% chance that someone finds an OD in the firmware they would, but like, that raises the bar for you to get compromised through any sort of phishing attack exponentially. So if you don't have one yet, get a hardware wallet. Great. Okay. Fantastic advice. Um, if people want to learn more about the Security Alliance or just learn more about your work, where, where should they go? Yeah. So my Telegram is always open uh, for DMs. My Twitter account is not because I hate Twitter DMs, but um, ping me a Telegram, send me an email. There's a page on my website with other contact methods, but I probably won't be looking at those. Um, and I'll, depending on, you know, what, what the question is, what the request is, like I'll prioritize and respond to them in order, but um, always happy to chat. And if you have questions about security, always happy to answer them. Just reach out. Awesome. 
Well, Sam, it's great to have you on. You're an absolute hero and a legend in the industry. Uh, you've got a multi-billion dollar rap sheet of hacks that you have stopped. So it's an honor to have you on and, and thanks for all the work that you do for everybody. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for this week. See you, everybody. Hey.